Good morning. <clears throat> I do want to begin with a thank you. I um, have, I'm through with my semester, so um, <laughs> I, have no, I have no assignments over the summer, so that's nice, and then one more year less left of school. But this was a challenging semester, and I am really grateful. I, I felt the prayers of, of you. I felt your support. I felt your encouragement, and I'm uh, thankful very much for that and thankful for the support of the session and, and everyone in continuing on this path. So I look forward over the summer to sharing more with you about some of the things that I've learned and, and, uh, uh, and we'll continue uh, to do that as well. Last week we looked at the first part of Mark. Pastor Steve was emphasizing the inside-out nature of the kingdom as we've even been thinking about during worship this morning. And, and particularly last week he was talking a lot about the centrality of the Bible as the authority in the life of the Christian. We see in this passage that Jesus is rebuking the misguided traditions of men regarding how to please God. The Pharisees have strayed from the intent of God's law and have multiplied their own laws for their own purposes. And in so doing, right, they've moved away from God rather than closer to him. Jesus is teaching that their approach of their traditions, that their religious approach is completely misguided. And in this, uh, in this passage, he'll be bringing into a sharp contrast a couple different things kind of woven in together. The Pharisees' definition of what it means to be clean and pure and holy before God and their relationship with the law and the traditions of men. This passage is the longest conflict speech in Mark's gospel. It's the first encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes actually since chapter 3. So there's been this time where uh, Jesus hasn't been focused a lot on the scribes and what's going on with, you know, this conflict with the Pharisees. But that hadn't gone away, of course. And already in chapter 3, we saw how they began to think about, in chapter 3, they began to think about how they could kill Jesus and get rid of him. So this simmering conflict has coming up, is coming up again here in our passage this morning. They came from Jerusalem to find out what Jesus was doing. Not probably with open minds and good intent, but to, uh, to trap him, to criticize him. And that's exactly what they'll do in our passage this morning. Jesus is emphasizing something that's really central and critical in his declaration of the good news of the kingdom of God. So I'm planning to preach through parts of this passage today and also next week. Today, focusing on this issue of purity and cleanness and holiness before God. And then next week, talking more about the role of tradition and the life of the Christian. These two issues, as, as I said, are kind of woven together in our account this morning. So we'll be in Mark 7, as I mentioned. It's on page 712. If you're using a pew Bible, there is a sermon outline uh, to help you follow along. Uh, but hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is uh, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he answered. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. God's word for us this morning. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, we come with reverence before your word. We come because you have spoken. We want to listen. We want to understand. uh, And we want to be changed by your word. And so we pray that you would accomplish your purposes this morning in this time as we reflect on these words. We thank you for preserving them for us. We thank you for giving them to us that we could read and that that we could meditate and that we could know the truth. Uh, guide and direct my words and our thoughts uh, all together uh, in these next few minutes. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you read through enough church history, you will continue to be amazed that there even is a church today at all. I spent some time this semester studying the early centuries of church history, focusing on the Christians who lived in the Middle East Uh, up until about the middle of the 6th century, so 550 A.D. or so. During that time, the church, if you think about the big sweep of church history, during that time, the church moved from being completely unorganized, you know, this group of people who were just sharing this news about Jesus, uh, and being underground, being often persecuted, to then becoming recognized as a legitimate religion, and then becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire and all of its... Uh, in all of its spread, wherever it was, and then experiencing kind of an unraveling and a splintering into many different kinds of Christian groups as the Christological controversies of the 5th century went on and divided uh, all of these groups of people. There were councils. There were councils that overthrew the decisions of the earlier councils. There were churches that were divided. There were church leaders in the major cities who were vying for prominence, for power, for political ends from Alexandria and Rome and Constantinople, Jerusalem and Antioch. There were, the emperor was watching, right? His ear was being bent by each party. He, depending on who the emperor was, changed 
the, the way the wind was blowing on some of these theological if, issues. Everyone was anathematizing their opponent. That is saying they should go to hell, basically. They kicked them out, burned their books, right? Church history is a mixed bag. There are heroic actions. There are supernatural events in God's promises. There are amazing things where we see his power on display. But really, if we think about it, there aren't any heroes, as in pure heroes. What I mean is that from the perspective of of history, everyone's flaws, everyone's blind spots become obvious and at points really embarrassing for the church. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, Athanasius, all of them. For as brilliant as they were, for as helpful as they were, for, for as used by God as they were, they also have these flaws and they wrote things that in many cases are very regrettable and embarrassing for the church. In the same way, right, in a modern context, if anyone could spend all day long reading headlines that make the church look bad. Leaders fall, churches fight over property, they fight over theology, they fight over, right, the the classic example is the color of the carpet, right? Pastors abuse their positions of trust. Churches compromise on important issues. Within popular culture, evangelicals are about as special as any other special interest group with a high disapproval rating, right? It's enough to make someone feel sort of cynical and jaded, right? How does the church even survive if so much of the news about us is bad? One response to this kind of dynamic is for Christians to be defensive. We can defend our heroes, we can criticize their opponents, we can distance ourselves from the fallen pastor and the conflicted church down the road and say that those things happen in other denominations, right? We can blame the media, we can blame historians who make headlines by dragging down our brothers and sisters in the faith and who have all kinds of unprovable and unlikely assertions to try to make us look worse than we really are. And we might be right to defend the truth with the facts, but we can't ignore the facts. We can't ignore the facts of history and the present, especially if they are embarrassing to us or to the cause of Christ. And rather than defending, we should be apologizing, not for the truth of the Bible, but for our failure to actually live by it. Where can holiness be found in the church? Can we point to goodness anywhere? I think this passage exposes the universal desire for us to want to excuse ourselves and to avoid honesty and repentance about our real condition. We want to look good. We want to say we're right. We want to shake our heads at all of those silly atheists out there. You see it all the time in social media, right? How much Christians will, will flock to something and like this article, and sometimes those things turn out to be uh, false, right? We want to be better. We want to be on the winning team. And while we would hope that we're pointing to Jesus, sometimes in reality we want to point to ourselves. And I think that this is the posture of the Pharisee. The Pharisees were deeply invested in maintaining an image of respectability, an image of holiness within their culture. Even when the evidence was against them, as Jesus points out, their minds aren't changed. They're defensive. 
And then they go on the offensive against him. They're not willing to see their own flaws and what was wrong with them and repent. Instead, they want to cover up and change the question and blame someone else. And as we turn to our text, we just see this very clearly in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is, they were unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And the Pharisees and the teachers have come to observe Jesus and right away they catch him. Here is something to criticize. His disciples don't wash their hands properly according to the traditions of the elders and the rabbis. And this kind of ritual and symbolic washing was very important for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It was not done for hygienic reasons. It was done as part of a religious practice. It was done as a symbol of being holy, of maintaining purity, of washing away sin and defilement, symbolically, of, you know, of being clean. And these washing traditions had come in, had some connection to the practices in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, only priests were required to wash before going into the tabernacle and participating in the sacrificial system. You can read about that in those different places in the Old Testament. Exodus 30 is in the section in which they describe all of the things that need to be made for the Israelites for the worship at the tabernacle. So they made the you know, the curtains and the Ark of the Covenant and all of those things. And one of the things that they made was this bronze basin for washing. And it says that the priests had to wash their hands and their feet before they entered the tabernacle or before offering a sacrifice. And what's interesting, if you look back at this passage in in Exodus 30, it says you have to wash or else you'll die. Within the Old Testament law, we see that purity was really important to God as part of worship. It was a life and death matter, actually, for the priests entering the tabernacle. It's not just something that's sort of tacked on. This is something that God is describing as something that's very important. And this practice isn't spelled out. Uh, we don't see a lot of continuing evidence for it as biblical history goes on for the, through the monarchy and first temple period. But we would expect that the priests would still be abiding by these rules for proper worship. But between the time of the Old Testament and Jesus' day, these kinds of rituals had become more widespread. They had become more applicable, not just for the priests, but for anyone who wanted to be holy, anyone who wanted to look holy, the Pharisees and other religious people. The laws about washing were multiplied, became more and more specific, more and more detailed, going way beyond what you find in the Old Testament in God's law itself. The Mishnah was the collection of Jewish traditions and rabbinical practices that was recorded mostly in the late 1st century and early 2nd century AD. And the idea of this collection was to preserve these traditions of the rabbis and the elders because after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, otherwise these things would be scattered and lost. About 25% of the Mishnah is concerned with spelling out all of the rules about laws and practices related to purity and uncleanness, related to washing, related to what you eat, how you ate it, how you prepared it, what your house was like. 
down to the smallest details, these traditions had multiplied. And some of the rules don't even make sense as far as we can discern them today. Some of the elements about uncleanness and purity seem strange and really, really random. Like, like unrecognizable if you would read it. You would say, what on earth does this mean? I don't, I don't understand how anyone could live by this and, and think it means something and understand the significance of it. In the Qumran community uh, that was described in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found in the 1950s, their washing was much beyond even the Pharisees, right? which is the problem of creating a system for holiness and maintaining external holiness. Right? Someone else always takes it a step further until it becomes just kind of impossible. In this passage, Mark is using two different words, well, in his gospel, actually, Mark is using two different words for unclean. Demons are unclean in the sense of evil and opposed to God. We see an example of that in, like, in, in chapter 1, verse 23, and later on in chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, that's one word for unclean, the Greek word for unclean. The other is what's used here. It means common, ordinary, not set apart. And so it's the opposite of holy, because holy things were those who, that were set apart, for a particular purpose. So the disciples' hands, the Pharisees are saying, have not been made holy. The disciples' hands have not been purified. They've not been set apart according to the washing, according by these washing rituals, according to these traditions. Mark describes in verses 3 and 4 the Jewish practices of the day, indicating that he's writing to a Greek or Roman audience. There's a clear indication that he's not writing to Jews, or otherwise he wouldn't explain all this stuff. But we can see how the Old Testament idea of washing, again, has turned into a need for, for what? I mean, like a sanitizing dishwasher for everything in your house. And if we think that Mark is exaggerating... Both the written evidence in the Mishnah, as I said, and also the archaeological evidence shows that this kind of washing had become extremely important. As they do excavations, they find these, these cleansing pools, they call them mikwaot, which are in ordinary Jewish homes. Everyone had one, and you used it for this kind of ceremonial uh, washing. Again, not for hygiene, just... Uh, for religious purposes. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law apply their own rules, their traditions, to Jesus' disciples in verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? The text doesn't tell us if Jesus washed according to their rules. I wish that I knew the answer to that question. Did he follow their rules or not? Why or why not? Sometimes we see Jesus deliberately provoking them by not following their traditions, right? When he healed the man on the Sabbath in front of them all and said, I'm going to show you that, that your tradition about not healing on the Sabbath is ridiculous, and I'm going to heal this man on the Sabbath. Sometimes... It seems like Jesus kind of followed their rules and didn't cause offense uh, unduly. So, uh, I mean, I'm curious. Of course, we don't have any evidence here, but it's an interesting question. From their perspective, it doesn't matter. These are his disciples. He's their rabbi, and so he's guilty of their bad behavior. 
It's a guilt by association kind of thing. He takes criticism for the bad behavior of the disciples, and this is the charge that the Pharisees bring. I'm going to skip down uh, into the next section, starting now in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered their house, the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Jesus shifts his attention to the crowd. Perhaps the religious, probably the religious leaders were still there, but he's not debating with them anymore. And in a way, kind of Jesus is writing them off on this issue or, or you know, content to bring it back at another time, feeling like he's not getting anywhere. But now it seems like he wants to use them to make a point, an object lesson about being clean. And for us, these verses sound pretty obvious. We've heard it before, probably. Defilement doesn't come from outside of you to corrupt you from the outside. Instead, what makes you unclean comes from inside of you. You can't catch sin like you catch a cold from the germs of worldliness that are out there in the air, right? The sin problem that you have is within you. Your heart is the problem. What comes out of your heart is what makes you unclean and impure. And as much as we've heard this before, it must have been really shocking to the people in Jesus' day. We can tell that the Pharisees never really get it. We can tell that the disciples in this passage can't seem to figure it out. What what does Jesus really mean? We have all of this system about purity. And so we do these things to be pure. Why is Jesus turning it all upside down? So Jesus tries to explain it again here. He's being actually a little graphic, describing how food doesn't go into your heart, goes into your stomach, and then literally it goes out into the latrine. Right? Jesus is explaining that the track for food through your body doesn't connect to your heart, where decisions are made, where sin is harbored. There's no intersection right, of food and heart. And so washed or unwashed hands don't have any effect on your sinful nature. And Mark makes clear that this teaching that we find here in the, uh, you know, he explains that it's the same as what we'll see in the book of Acts with Cornelius and elsewhere, that there's nothing objectively sinful about certain kinds of foods, and that God's uh, restrictions in the Old Testament about food had specific purposes, not to teach that certain foods are somehow sinful. It's significant that Mark mentions this specifically because probably by the time he was writing, there was a lot of debate about the application of food laws to Christians. We see this in the New Testament letters. We see it continuing on, particularly in the church in the East. There was a lot of, for centuries, there was continued discussion about what does it mean for the Christians to have the Old Testament, too, as part of our holy book? How Jewish are we? What about Jews moving to Christianity? What about Christians who are still adopting some Jewish practices, some Old Testament practices. It took a long time for the church to kind of sort out some of these things and know how to apply them and not do it in a legalistic kind of way. So it's not an easy issue. As much as we've heard it, it was not an easy issue 
for these people to try to process what Jesus actually means. He tells us at the end what really makes us unclean in verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, uh, from out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. And then he describes these evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. It's quite an impressive list of evil thoughts. The first six in the Greek, the first six are in the plural, and the second six are in the singular. And one commentator takes this to mean, and I think this makes sense, that the first six describe evil actions that are done discreetly, that you can do many times uh, by using the plural noun. And then the second group concern evil attitudes. That's this thing among us, within us, that persists that's there and that comes out in different ways and we don't have time to explain each sin but it's worth noting them individually and even as i read it i sort of you know blast through the list but i think it's worth noting that each one is here in god's word it's worth taking the time to ponder them it's these are sins that plague us in all of their manifestations in all of their expressions Jesus uses this list to show us that what's important to understand is that these sins are rooted in the heart and they come out from there. As Mark concludes, if he could make it any more clear, he, he did with the last verse there one more time. The Apostle Paul gives us something of a similar list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He describes how those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, you Corinthian believers, you used to do those things. You used to be this way, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul is talking about something that's not an external washing ritual involving hands and feet and bowls and utensils. Paul's talking about an internal washing that's done by the Spirit of God. He's talking about a heart transplant, a radical procedure in which our heart of stone, a spiritually dead heart, is is replaced, is removed and replaced by a spiritual living one. The Bible pictures this in so many ways. The list of our sins, these sins and so many more, are nailed to the cross. This list is canceled that was on our account. It's the good news the gospel isn't it so how does this change us how does this change our thinking how does this change our actions i'm going to start with a question that isn't a trick question is our church a good church i'm particularly invested in a certain answer to that question If this church isn't a good church, then that must mean that either Steve or I or maybe both of us aren't very good pastors. So let's not talk about that. (laughs) But seriously, is our church a good church? Like, what do I want to say? I want to say yes. I want to say, well, it's better than average. I want to say, oh, look at our, our food ministry. Look at our VBS. Look at these things that we do. 
Or I want to say, that church down the road, man, they sure are messed up. Did you hear about what happened? About, ooh, yikes. Right? The real answer, if you peel back the curtain and you shine the light, is that you find that we're a mess, that we're broken in a host of ways, that we perpetuate a broken church culture. We have hidden sins that need to be confessed, but would really embarrass us if anyone found out. We struggle to really love each other. Instead, we want to put ourselves and our opinions first. We let each other down. Pastors, session, deacons, leaders, followers. We doubt, we worry, we believe the worst. We perpetuate conflicts that should be avoided. We avoid conflicts that should be pursued to reconciliation. We present a life is pretty good front on Sunday mornings when things might really be falling apart on the inside. And we have the wrong-headed suspicion that the reason that things are falling apart on the inside is because I don't pray enough or I don't read my Bible enough. The stuff that we mess up is the basic calling of the Christian life, right? Following Jesus 101, love one another, prefer the needs of others to yourself, trust God, be honest, confess our sins, Forgive one another just as Christ forgave you. So I'm not talking about things that are complicated, right? Like doing church discipline or designing and evaluating effective ministry programs, creating long-term vision, other kinds of things. And actually, those things aren't more important. The basic stuff is the most important to God, and it's the foundation of any kind of ministry or strategic planning or church discipline or anything. I'm not trying to minimize our sins or downplay them. I'm trying to maximize them so that we can all understand how foolish it is and how pharisaical it is to place our hope in any external kind of holiness or purity or relevance or being better than anyone else or any other church or any other denomination. It's easy for our hearts to come up with a measure that we can use that makes us look good, or at least better than someone else, right? And if we think that our church is a good one, then we might not really need the gospel. If we've kind of got it figured out, then we don't need to really repent before God. If we're better than someone else, And where are we? We're sort of on the wrong side of Jesus' words, right? We're trying to clean up the outside of our lives. We're thinking that no one will notice the gunk that's on the inside. It's an investment to try to look better, right? And it's the worst kind of investment that we can make, right? Jesus is turning everything upside down. All of these people who have built this elaborate system, who are deeply invested in maintaining their own holiness, maintaining their own purity, making people think that they're good. Those are the people who are most opposed to Jesus' plans, right? Those are the people who who can't get their heads around what he's trying to say about what's really important. Right? So, I've been, I've been thinking about this for a few weeks. Is our church a good church? What does it mean? What does it mean for the church to be good? 
it's hard to defend the church, isn't it? It's hard to, uh, it's hard to say, yeah, that's a great church. Well, I mean, we say that, but probably we don't know better, right? And if we really believe the gospel, then we're all on the same playing field. We're on the, on the same level. We're in this position of saying, God, God is great, God is merciful, and we need his mercy. And we are desperately in need of his mercy because we're messed up. We need help. In the sermon outline this morning, I put a number of questions in there for our, our, our reflection on this topic of purity and holiness. Because I think even as much as we've heard it, even as much as we know that the problem is inside, we still want to clean up the outside. We want people to think um, that, that, we're, that we're good. Christians are revived and they go and they grow, I'm sorry, through confession and repentance and joy in the gospel. Right? If, you, if you look at church history, the good things that happen so often uh, come about as a result of Christians repenting. And God sends his spirit in a way that revives the church, in a way that encourages the church. And it's all, it's usually just very simple. It's getting our heads around this idea that Jesus forgives all of our sins. It's getting our heads really around that, that Jesus loves us. And that we don't have to impress him and we can't impress him. And that it's not about what we do better than somebody else. It's that Jesus forgives all of our sins. And so, you don't have to hide them. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to act like you have it all together. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what churches, that's what we want to do. That's what churches tend to do. And when that happens, then what happens to us? We start to have this disconnect with what we do and who we are. We start to feel that tension of, if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. If God really knew me, he wouldn't like me. We start to feel those kinds of things instead of saying, God, you know me, and I'm so glad that you forgive me. And then saying that to one another. You know me. You know my weaknesses. And I'm glad you forgive me. And I'm glad that you give me grace uh, when I stumble. Grace when I hurt you, when I let you down. Churches have to live out this following Jesus 101, right? This kind of not following rules in order to feel good about ourselves, but following Jesus. So I encourage you to consider these things this week. If you want to talk about it more, join us for the sermon discussion class. We'll talk about it for an hour, about what it looks like for us to continue to process this outside-inside dynamic what it means for us to really be real about ourselves and about what Jesus has done in the gospel. Um, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And God, we pray that you would help us to get our heads around this idea that we can't fool you or anyone else 
that we shouldn't want to, and that you forgive us. And that it's right for us to be open-handed and to call out for your mercy rather than to want to run away and put forward some kind of exterior that's hypocritical. So, Lord, we pray that you would work these things within us in, in your church. Would you purify us? Would you show us our sin? Would you give us grace towards one another? Would you indeed make us if not a good church, a better church, and and purify and work among your people. Lord, we're dependent on you. We may think that we're dependent on on strategies and programs. We may think that we're dependent on our building or our, our finances or all of these other things, Lord, but we're dependent on you. And so we ask that you would revive your people and give us a fresh sense of your gospel, uh, that we would know our for, the forgiveness that we've received that we would extend it to one another, and that we would bring that message to our community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.